Exodus 25. I'd like you to uh, also turn at the same time to Hebrews chapter 8. Put your finger there in Hebrews and then come back to Exodus 25. So Exodus 25 and Hebrews chapter 8 as we get going tonight. been a really good day, an interesting day in the life of the Crawfords. <laughs> and without getting into why and, and some conversations, it's, it's just, boy, this is a long story. I, I can't tell tonight. If you want to know, I'll tell you later. But it, it's a good place to be when you realize that uh, life is better lived where the only way things can work out is by the hand of the Lord. And when you can learn to live that way, it's, it's a much more peaceful and wonderful way to, way to live. And the rest of the world sits there and looks at you and says, how does it work? And you say, it's the Lord. It seems to me that in a lot of our lives we achieve so much. Good job. And we do so well for ourselves that it's hard to tell. Is it the Lord at work or is it just that we've worked really hard and made, and made good for ourselves? But when you live life in such a way, again, that there's no way you can make it but that the hand of the Lord is on you. That's a good thing. And now you're all wondering, what in the world has happened today? It's not that big a deal, really. Just some decisions Cheryl and I have made, and, or at least are praying about, and some conversation we've had with our kids, and just really good stuff. So I, I, I come to you tonight. This morning I had a lot of just... Um, just conviction about what we're going to study and now I've got just a lot of peace and so I'm not sure how this is going to come off but we are about to enter the tabernacle the tabernacle a section of scripture that in my previous days as a a young Christian especially I, I would have just tried to skip through as quick as possible because it's just blueprints and diagrams and who cares where's the next battle and where's the next interesting story or the next thing? Where's the next time that Israel's really going to mess up? I like reading those stories. But the blueprints for the tabernacle. And that's like sitting around and reading blueprints for a, for a church building. I mean, who cares? Big deal. But my friends, it is a huge deal. And beginning in chapter 25 all the way to the end of Exodus, this is where we're going to be. In the tabernacle. We're going to see the tabernacle and understand it maybe in ways that you never have before or maybe in ways that will reaffirm that which you've always believed about God, that His plan is astounding. God provides the blueprints, again, in these chapters ahead of us for this movable temple, the tabernacle, and it's not designed by the Israelites. It is designed by God Himself and for good reason. If you'll skip ahead in chapter 25 to verse 8. God says, let them construct a sanctuary for me, that I may dwell among them. According to all that I'm going to show you as the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furniture, just so you shall construct it. And God says to Moses, I have a very specific plan. You need to follow this plan exactly to my precise specifications. Nicola would have been very comfortable with these plans. We're going to look at these things, but let's pray for a moment first. Father, 
I realize that though it is by reading and by study that we are going to approach tonight the holiest place. The holy of holies and the most important piece of furniture contained within. But Lord, unlike Moses, unlike the high priest, we don't do so with trepidation or with fear. But we do so with the confidence bought by us by the blood of Jesus. And we do so with interest, Father, and consideration of these things. We want to know what this is all about. We have come to understand, Lord, over the months and and, uh, many chapters we've studied so far in the Bible that everything has a reason. That you don't just stick things in Scripture just for history. But it's there for us today to understand more of you and your heart and to see Jesus more clearly. Show us tonight, Father. Show us Jesus. And Holy Spirit, guide us into this study. And touch us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, chapters 25 through 40 provide the pattern and reveal the construction of the tabernacle. All the way to the very last verses of the book, chapter 40 will end with God, the glory of God, entering into the tabernacle, and the book of Exodus will be completed. It's a fantastic way to end this part of the story. But before the glory can enter in, the tabernacle itself needs to be constructed. But you may ask, you may wonder... Does God dwell in a house built by human hands? And he's telling Moses here to construct this tabernacle so that he may dwell among them. But does God do that? The God who created the heavens, does he need a building to dwell in? And we've discovered at the bridge, he certainly doesn't need a church building to be present. But does he need the tabernacle? What's the deal with this? Isaiah chapter 66 verse 1. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What then, or where there, then is a house that you could build for me? I mean, if if I kick back in the heavens and put my feet up on the earth, what could you possibly build for me? Acts chapter 17 verse 24 tells us the God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. So again, we ask, what's the deal? Does God dwell in a house made by human hands or not? And the answer is not. He doesn't. But he does dwell in a place of which the tabernacle, and listen to this, of which the tabernacle is a shadow. A shadow or a blueprint. You remember being a kid and the first time you saw your shadow or began to recognize that it was there and it kind of followed you around? And I I love the movie Peter Pan because I always thought, could you really take your shadow off and then stitch it back to your shoes to get it back on? And even now, even as adults, all you have to do is put a group of people in a dark room, shine a light on the wall, and give them about five minutes. And someone's going to be up there going, you know, making the hand signals. We're fascinated by shadows. Shadows that are dim reflections or representations of the real thing. Well, that's what the tabernacle is. It's a shadow of the real thing. Gang, this is so important for us to understand in our lives, not just about the tabernacle, but about life, that the world in which we live is but a shadow of that which is to come. What we call real is not so real. What we consider tangible and physical is not even close to the weight of the realness of heaven 
and of that which is to come. I love how C.S. Lewis wrote about this. He wrote in a book called The Great Divorce. It's a fiction story, a stunning fiction story, about a magnificent bus ride to heaven and then to hell. And the group of people on the bus actually get out in heaven and get to experience it for a few minutes and then go down to hell and experience that for a few minutes. And it's all in the fanciful mind of C.S. Lewis, but it's powerful. I want to read you a little section out of this. This is from the book The Great Divorce. It was the light, the grass, the trees that were different, made of some different substance, so much solider than the things in our country that men were ghosts by comparison. Moved by a sudden thought, I bent down and tried to pluck a daisy that was growing at my feet. The stalk wouldn't break. I tried to twist it, but it wouldn't twist. I tugged till the sweat stood out on my forehead, and I had lost most of the skin off my hands. The little flower was hard, not like wood, not even like iron, but more like diamond. Uh, There was a leaf, a young, tender beech leaf, lying in the grass beside it. I tried to pick the leaf up. My heart almost cracked with the effort, and, and I believe for a moment I did just raise it. But I had to let it go at once. It was heavier than a sack of coal. And as I stood recovering my breath with great gasps and looking down at the daisy, I noticed that I could see the grass not only between my feet, but through them. I was also a phantom. Who will give me words to express the terror of that discovery? And as you read, as he goes on talking about walking on the grass in heaven and the grass being so much more solid, so much more real, that it literally hurt because it went right up through his ghost-like feet. And I think he's on to something here. The the things that we call real, the tangible so-called, the the real world in which we live is not real by comparison at all. It's for the shadow of the things to come. God's heaven is not less real than life on earth. It's more real. Now flip over to Hebrews chapter 8. Keep your finger in Exodus 25. Hebrews chapter 8. Listen closely. The book of Hebrews, it's hard reading. But it's very powerful and important to understand. Beginning in verse 1 of Hebrews chapter 8. Now the main point in what has been said is this. And if you want to know what has been said, go back and read chapter 7 tonight when you get home. He says, We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, so it is necessary that this high priest, talking about Jesus, also have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since those who offer the gifts, since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law, who, verse 5, listen to this, who serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. Just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle for, see, he says, that you make all things according to the pattern. According to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. Now skip in your Bibles a little bit further in Hebrews to chapter 9, verse 11. Chapter 9, verse 11. The writer goes on to say, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation. 
And not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Skip a little bit further ahead to verse 23. Therefore, it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these, speaking of Christ's blood. But the heavenly, or actually speaking of animal blood there, it was necessary for the copies of the things in heaven to be cleansed with these. That is animal blood, animal sacrifice. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these, verse 24, for Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Listen, you may want to jot this down. Understand as we get into the tabernacle and begin to study it, that the tabernacle is an earthly pattern of the heavenly original. It's the earthly pattern of the heavenly original. God didn't just say, throw up a tent, I need somewhere to carry the box, it's going to carry the Ten Commandments. He said, I am going to give you a pattern here, a precise pattern that I want you to follow. It's a copy, it's a blueprint, if you will, of something else. And that is the heavenly original, the true tabernacle, the true throne room, if you will, in heaven. And so as we study through the tabernacle and seek to understand it, what we're going to find is that this structure gives us insights into heaven itself. If you ever wanted to see heaven, what is it really like? You're going to get glimpses of it in the tabernacle. It was a copy patterned after something more real. I, I mentioned Niccolo a few minutes ago, and I do that because I know how much it bugs him. But uh, what's funny, in, in the way that we're interacting, we, it's, it's been such a pleasure over the last few months to work on this house together. He does the work, and I just go up and, and interrupt and tell him what else I want him to change and move that there. But what's great is he has a, a, a similar response almost every time I say, hey, um, is there a, a, a light fixture in this particular room? His response is, there it is if it's on the plans. <laughs> and I say, yeah, okay, well, it, what, what size is, is the office? Is that, is that 10 by 10? Is that, he said, it depends on whatever the plans call for. And he used that phrase so much after a while, I started to catch on. He's really following these plans. Now, from, a, from my perspective, a guy who has never built a house before in his life, I thought the plans were just like a guideline. You know? Kind of like the way I used to look at the Ten Commandments. You know, take them or leave them. Just a guideline. But he takes the plans and he has been walking through them. And so Cheryl and I in the last few months have been coming back to the plans going, okay, that's not right. Scratch that out. And going up to Nicholas saying, we don't want this. <laughs> we changed it. Look, we even wrote it on the plan just to make sure that it's right. You see, there's no room for creativity, at least on Nicholas' part, in the building of the house because he's not going to live there. It's not his house. He's building it for someone else in the same way God says to Moses, there's no room for creativity here, Mo. I want you to build what I tell you to build precisely as I tell you to build it. Why? Why is it so important? Because it's a pattern. Because it's a, an earthly pattern of the heavenly original. And so he tells Moses, stick to my plans. In fact, verse 9 of Exodus 25, if you want to flip back over there, he says, according to all that I'm going to show you as the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furniture, just so you shall construct it. And he will repeat that verse several times over the next several chapters. Construct it as I tell you. Pay careful attention to the plans. Do it exactly and precisely as I have said. 
because the tabernacle is an earthly pattern of the heavenly original but it gets better than that that would be awesome in and of itself if that was the only deal thank you Hank if that was it then at that point I'd I'd be stunned I'd be amazed I'd be like wow but it's so much more because the second thing to jot down is the tabernacle is also an earthly pattern of the heavenly one that is Jesus as you go through the tabernacle the description all of the implements the furniture contained within every facet every detail every inch of design will speak of Jesus in stunning ways and we will only tip the iceberg tonight we will only begin to see this as we look at something called the Ark of the Covenant in this first part of this chapter pictures of Jesus breathtaking in their specifics now you might think okay if the tabernacle is an earthly pattern of the heavenly original that is heaven itself the throne room and and it's a pattern of of the heavenly one of Jesus I gotta ask a question why is it that God would choose a tent for these things why would he choose a tent to portray not only the heavens but his own coming to earth and I'll tell you it's perfect it works beautifully let me give you a couple reasons why he would do so it's applicable historically that is across all history tell me what more perfect symbol than a tent that every culture every people group regardless of where you live where you're from or, or who you are everybody knows what a tent is think about that all the way from nomadic wanderers to northwest hikers everybody knows what a tent is all the way from Abraham to REI everybody knows what a tent is Adam all the way up to even me and I'm not the most avid camper in the world but I know what a tent is it's historically easy to understand it crosses boundaries crosses cultures and so God says I'm going to build a tent and in this tent you're going to get a vision of heaven not a grand cathedral and isn't that wonderful even when David wanted to construct the temple God wasn't all that impressed or excited he said David you want to build me a house I'll tell you what I'll build you a house how about that and the temple was eventually constructed but God's original design was a tent because it's historically applicable it's also applicable messianically messianically I'm not sure if that's a word but we're going to use it as one tonight John 1.14 tells us the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we saw his glory dwelt among us that word dwelt is skinoo in the Greek and it's literally tabernacled he tabernacled among us he became as a tent among us Jesus pitched his tent among us the very manner of Christ's first coming the God man glory wrapped in flesh the king made servant is clearly depicted in the tabernacle you're going to see that tonight it's applicable historically it's applicable messianically and it's also applicable symbolically because the tabernacle was a temporary dwelling for the glory of God while the children of Israel wandered in the desert the flesh that Jesus wore was a temporary dwelling as he existed on earth a dwelling that has since been made eternal and the lives that we live are temporary we are here temporarily not long term we keep coming back to that the whole idea of sojourning and it is so important that we grasp that day in and day out I need to be knocked upside the head as I was this afternoon over and over to recognize that this is temporary it's not long term 
Why am I worried about next year? Why am I worried about the year after that? Why do I even plan for tomorrow? It's temporary. I'm not here long. And we're not here for a long time. Well, with all these things in mind, Exodus 25, verse 1. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Tell the sons of Israel to raise a contribution for me. Uh Uh-oh. From every man. I want money. Dig deep into your pocketbook, saith the Lord. No. He says, From every man whose heart moves him, he shall raise my contribution. I like that. You tell everybody, Hey, we're going to have a contribution. We're going to have an offering. But I only want those people who feel so moved to be involved. So if you're not into it, go about your business. He goes on, he says, This is the contribution which you are to raise from them. Gold and silver and bronze. Blue, purple, and scarlet material. Fine linen, goat hair, ram skins dyed red, porpoise skins, acacia wood, oil for lighting, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and setting stones for the ephod, and for the breast piece. And at this point, Moses is going, ephod? What's <laughs> Breast piece? We'll find out about these things. And he goes on again and says, Let them construct a sanctuary for me, that I may dwell among them, according to all that I am going to show you, as the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furniture, just so you shall construct it. Now what interests me at first here is that although the tabernacle will be made to exacting specifications, the people still have a part to play in its construction. God doesn't just snap his fingers and cause it to come into being. Oh, he could have done that. But he decides, he provides for the people to be involved. And he says, my tabernacle, the place where my glory will dwell, that place where we will meet together, it's going to be built on your generosity. And so the people could at any given time walk by that great tent of meeting and go, I had something to do with that. Which consequently is part of the reason I believe the church is in the world today. Not the church buildings so much, the church as in people. That we can say... I had something to do with that. In all of my worthlessness and in all of my goofing up and the mistakes that I make in my life, God still said, Rick, I want you to be involved with something. Something great. Something wonderful. Tuesday night at the men's group, we went around and we were talking and I, was, I walked away stunned at how one by one each one of the guys shared from their own perspective, how the Lord had brought them to the bridge, and I was just, I was blown away. Because what I realized is I'm not the only person who is called to be a part of what's going on here. And I believe that's true for any church that the Lord calls us to. If we're listening, if we're paying attention, He's saying, I want you to be involved. I want you connected. I want you to be able to walk by and say, wow, I had something to do with that. Because when we say those things, God says, yes, you did. Add a boy. Add a girl. Those are my kids doing what I want them to do. And that's great. But you've got to ask the question, where, where did these people get all these items to build with anyway? I mean, all these precious stones and gold and silver and bronze and, and all of this scarlet material and goat. Where, where did they get all this stuff? Some of it you may say, well, you know, maybe the goat hair they got off their goats. The ram skins, they could kill their rams and, and do the porpoise skins. Where are they going to get porpoise skins? It's a little weird. Well, that's easy. Right out of the Mediterranean. You see, they came from Egypt prior to this. And you remember what happened right before they left Egypt. 
Exodus chapter 12 verse 35 says the sons of Israel had done according to the word of Moses for they had requested from the Egyptians articles of silver and articles of gold and clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have their request thus they plundered the Egyptians. God sacked the place before they left. God knew that by the time they got out to Sinai and he began to give them the description of the tabernacle that they were going to need some things to build it with. And so he sacked Egypt and got the riches from there and the people already had it by the time they got to Sinai. Isn't that wonderful? You see how God plans ahead? And he does this in our lives too, by the way. He knows what's coming. He knows what's ahead. He knows what we need when we need it. And oftentimes he gives it to us early and we're going, wow, how did I get this? And then boom, the need's there. And that's what he's doing with the people. And he's calling them now. All this stuff. As you plundered Egypt, I have good use for it. I want you to learn something here. And that is generosity. So the question is, did they lack the raw materials? No. The real question is, would they be lacking in raw generosity? How would the people respond? Keep your finger in Exodus 24 and skip ahead to Exodus 35. Let's just take a quick peek ahead at how the people will respond. Exodus 35. A lot will happen between now and Exodus 35, both in our lives but also in this story. But at this point, a sneak preview, verse 21 of Exodus 35 tells us, starting, let's start in verse 20. Then all the congregation of the sons of Israel departed from Moses' presence, and everyone whose heart stirred him, which is what God was looking for, And everyone whose spirit moved him came and brought the Lord's contribution for the work of the tent of meeting and for all its servants uh, service and for the holy garments. Verse 29, skipping ahead, says the Israelites, all the men and women whose heart moved them to bring material for all the work which the Lord had commanded for Moses to be done brought a free will offering to the Lord. This was stuff they wanted to give. They were excited to give. They were engaged in the process of generosity and it felt good. They wanted to do it. Now skip ahead to chapter 36, verse 4. An amazing verse or situation here. And all the skillful men who were performing all the work of the sanctuary, each from the work which he was performing, and they said to Moses, they all came together and said to him, The people are bringing much more than enough for the construction work which the Lord commanded us to perform. So Moses issued a command, and a proclamation was circulated throughout the camp saying, Let no man or woman any longer perform work for the contributions of the sanctuary. Thus the people were restrained from bringing any more. Have you ever heard a pastor tell people, Stop giving? But Moses did. He said, it's enough. It's piling up. We don't have room for all that you're giving. Your generosity is overwhelming. And so he actually says, stop. God knows something about the human heart. He understands that want to giving is much more potent than got to giving. Want to giving. That that sense that, man, I can't wait to get back to the offering box at the end of service to drop in whatever I've brought to the Lord. I can't wait just for that part of church when I get to do that. I can't wait for that aspect of worship. That's want to. Got to is, oh yeah, did we bring the checkbook? Do we have anything left? Should we do it today? We'll get to it next week. Oh no, we probably better do it today because if we don't, then you know next week it'll be hanging over our heads. That's sitting down with the bills and writing them out and getting down to the tithe check and going... Okay, Lord. All right. I'll do it, but I'm not happy about it. That's got to giving. I'll do it because it makes me 
a more holy person. It impresses God when I give big chunks of money out of my paycheck, and so I'm going to do it. That's got to giving. God doesn't want that. He wants want to giving out of us. And I want to ask you, when you give, personal question, between you and the Lord, answer this in your heart. Do you have the want to, or do you have the got to? When that time or opportunity comes, or you're looking down through the checkbook, do you respond out of got to or want to? Paul put it this way, 2 Corinthians 9 verse 7, he said, Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful, a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. You know what he's saying there? He's saying if you are generously and and faithfully and joyously giving to the Lord, he's going to give you more. Why? So you can stash it away? No. So you can give more. And the more you give, the more God's going to give you so you can give more. That's the cycle of generosity and that's what he's called believers to. And there's an underlying principle here, folks, and it's faith. It's faith. Boy, we're a little tight this month. Let's write a bigger check. Because when we do, then we know for certain it was God that got us through and not our own penny pension. Hmm. By the way, and I kind of snickered at this, uh, God loves a cheerful giver. The word cheerful? The word cheerful in the Greek is hilaros. It's where we get our word hilarious. God wants hilarious givers. He wants people who are giddy about giving. Can you even imagine that sense, that feeling? I mean, how fun would it be if that's the way we approached it? And gang, the reason why is that God is able to do far more with want-to givers than with got-to givers. Hilarious givers, people who are just excited about it, those are the ones God wants. Why? Because He can do more. What do you mean? I mean, well, look at this story, John chapter 6. And I won't read it to you tonight, we don't have time. But it's the only account of the feeding of the 5,000 with the fishes and loaves that specifically tells us where the fishes and loaves came from. John chapter 6, verses 1 through 13. It came from a small lad. You remember the story. You may have heard it in Sunday school or you may have heard it tossed about in sermons. But the the apostles are standing around. Jesus said, the people look hungry. Let's feed them. Philip says, yeah. Okay. Right? Feed them. That's going to take like a year's wages, Lord. How could we possibly do this? And Andrew, you've got to love Andrew. He just comes up and says, well, we do have a little something here. Come here, Junior. We got a young man who has a sack lunch. Now, here's what I love, and I'm going to read into this just a little bit, but I really think this is what was going on. Out of 5,000 people, are you telling me that only one little lad had a sack lunch? I'm thinking in that group of 5,000, there had to be some people who had some food, who had it tucked away, who themselves were looking around going, don't pull out the fish, honey, until they're looking the other way. There's a good rock. Let's get back there and grab Junior and we'll eat back there. Where'd Junior go? He's got his lunch. Oh, no! Everybody's going to find out. Junior was excited. Junior was a hilarious giver. He was a one-two giver. I got a sack lunch. I heard Andrew, I heard you guys worrying about food. I got plenty. Heart of a child. Are we really to believe that of all those people, only one little kid had a mom who remembered to pack him a lunch? I don't think so. I think there were plenty of people probably who had 
other food. And Jesus probably knew that as well and probably could have said, gang, here's what we need. We need to take a collection of fish and loaves because we've got to feed each other here and we need it up front right now. So please line up and you know what he would have gotten? A whole line of got-to-givers. Okay, get the lunch, we'll feed them. But instead, Jesus looks down at this one precious lad and has one want-to-giver and out of that want-to provided a feast. And that's how he works. That's what he does even in churches. I'll tell you, and I'm I'm learning this, I've learned it slowly in my life, but as a pastor, give me five want-to-givers over 150 got-to-givers any day. Why? Because God will make the five want-tos explode. God will grow a church with five people who really desire to be involved much faster than with 150 who are just not really sure. The got-tos versus the want-tos. And a little hint here. The want-to is a whole lot more fun. So let me say this to you. Uh, God will always use hilarious giving over hesitant giving. And because of that, if you're going to give grudgingly, let me just give you permission right now not to give at all. Treat yourself and your family to lunch on Sunday and don't give at all if it's hard to give. Just don't do it. The church is going to be fine. There are want-to givers here. Many of you. I would probably guess most of you are want-tos. But here's the deal. It's not that the bridge or the church needs or God needs our money. The reality is He wants you and I to grow in faith. And we grow in faith when we want to give and we don't know how it's going to work. But He provides and we go, wow, that's how it works. That's how it works. There's no way we were going to make it this month. But that's how it works. Want-to giving versus got-to giving. And by the way, if giving to a particular church, if giving to this church is problematic for you, and I need to say this because I'm not just a pastor trying to cover his paycheck. God's taking care of that too. When we started out with 20 people and I was paid full-time from day one, I still don't understand exactly how that worked. But I will tell you this much. If giving here is problematic to you, find a missionary and tithe to him. Get involved with a Christian organization where there are children in need and give to it. It's not a matter of where you give as much as the heart with which you give. God wants to grow us faithful. He wants us to learn how to trust. And you're saying, Rick, at this rate we are never going to get back to the tabernacle. I know that, so let's move on. (laughs) By the way... Uh, i got to tell you one more thing. There's an interesting quote. John Corson was talking about this very thing. And he said, if Christians, and he had a statistic, and I'm not sure where he got it, so I'm just going to quote him. If Christians would simply tithe, every church, every ministry, every mission work, every Christian service organization, every parachurch ministry worldwide would be debt-free in less than two years if every Christian would just give 10% of their income. And on top of that, every single hungry person in the world would be fed. If we just tithed. Of course, with that kind of faith, the entire world would be completely turned upside down. But that's hilarious giving, isn't it? Alright, back to Exodus chapter 25, verse 10. So he, he gets the people involved. He says, I want you to bring it. And I want you to bring it generously. I want you to want to. And verse 10 he says... They shall construct an ark of acacia wood, 
two and a half cubits long, and one and a half cubits wide, and one and a half cubits high. Real quickly, a cubit is roughly 18 inches. They measured it from the tip of the finger to the elbow. And so whatever that was, so it varied a bit depending on the builder, you know. With Niccolo, my cubit might be a little less than if it was someone else. I'm just kidding. That was, that was harsh. Um, no, but that, that's how... It was. So we're talking about a chest here. And, and by the way, the word ark, the word ark in the Bible is Aaron, and it's simply a box or a chest. And so he says, I want you to build this ark, two and a half cubits, that'd be roughly four feet, a little less than that, by one and a half cubits, Two feet by one and a half cubits. Two feet. So it's four by two by two. That's about the size of the Ark of the Covenant. Verse 11, he says, You shall overlay it with pure gold inside and out. You shall overlay it and you shall make a gold molding around it. The word molding is literally crown. I want a crown around it. Crown molding. (laughs) Verse 12, You shall cast four gold rings for it and fasten them on its four feet. And two rings shall be on one side of it and two rings shall be on the other side of it. And you shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. You shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark with them. So let me see where I am here. Verse 15. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be removed from it. And he says, You shall put into the ark the testimony which I shall give you. Now, stopping back there, verse 15. The, the poles... And the rings are simply for moving the ark around. In other words, don't touch the ark. You are not to touch it. I've got poles for that. It can be carried. And it's also supposed to be carried, not run around on a cart. It's important to remember when we eventually get to David. Because in David's life, there is a time when he's bringing the ark back into Jerusalem. And they're doing it all wrong. It's a horrible mess. It's a bad situation. You can read about it in 2 Samuel chapter 6. They have the ark on parade. And they've got all kinds of instruments playing. And they're just having a blast. And they're rolling the ark along on a cart. And the cart tips. And poor Uzzah. The man who for all history and all eternity will be remembered as the idiot who touched the ark. Because in the moment that the ark began to tip, Uzzah reached out and touched it and instantly died. You don't touch the ark. You don't roll it on a cart. You carry it. You do it right. God was very specific about that. Now, pay close attention to what goes inside. And again, verse 16, you shall put into the ark the testimony which I shall give you. That is, engraved in stone, the Ten Commandments. Written by the finger of God. You're going to bring the testimony. It's not the whole law, not the whole law of Moses, just the testimony. Specifically, those Ten Commands written by God on the stone, you're going to put that into the ark. But ultimately, we find out later on that three items grace the inside of the ark. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 4 tells us, The ark of the covenant was covered on all sides with gold, that we know, in which was a golden jar holding the manna. Secondly, and Aaron's rod which budded. That's a great story. Numbers chapter 16 and 17, which we're going to get to. I mean, that's a story to look forward to in the book of Numbers about how Aaron's rod burst forth with buds, flowers, and ultimately provided edible almonds. This is an amazing miracle. Well, that rod was put in there as well. We'll see why in a few minutes. And thirdly, the tables of the covenant. Jar of manna, Aaron's budding rod, and the tables of the covenant. We'll come back to these again. But atop the ark sat another piece of furniture. A very specific piece of furniture connected to but considered separate from the ark. Verse 17. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold 
two and a half cubits long and one and a half cubits wide. You shall make two cherubim, that's angels, of gold, and make them of hammered work at the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub at one end and one cherub at the other end. And you shall make the cherubim of one piece with the mercy seat at its two ends. The cherubim shall have their wings spread upward, covering the mercy seat with their wings and facing one another. The faces of the cherubim are to be turned toward the mercy seat. And you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark. And in the ark you shall put the testimony which I will give you. And there I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim, which are upon the ark of the testimony, I will speak to you about all that I will give you in the commandment for the sons of Israel. The mercy seat. Connected to the ark as a lid, but separate as a unique piece of furniture that was constructed by itself and placed then on top of the ark. It wasn't all just one thing. It was two items and that will be important to remember as well so God asked Israel for an offering Israel brings the offering the hearts of the people were moved with hilarious generosity and work began on God's top two priorities for the tabernacle the Ark of the Covenant and the Mercy Seat which is a very strange design scheme why would he do it that way? When we started building our house, we didn't begin by choosing the living room furniture. We didn't sit down and go, okay, before we build this house, we need to get down to the Costco home store and pick out a nice couch. And once we pick the nice couch, the right couch, the piece that we really want, then we'll build the house around it. And we want to start, Niccolo, in the living room. We'll get to the foundation later, but I want the living room first so I can put the couch in it. And then we're going to build out from there. That's what God does here. And it's very strange. It's opposite of what we would do. We would start on the outside. Okay, I'm going to build a tabernacle. Big tent. Let's do the tent. And then we'll go through the tent and add the next one, the holy place, and then the holy of holies. And then once we get that all done, then we'll start working on pieces of furniture and we'll work our way in finally to the last piece. The Ark of the Covenant and the Mercy Seat. But God says, no, we're going to start at the heart of the matter. We're going to begin right here in the middle. His instructions to Moses regarding the construction of the tabernacle is begin from the inside and work your way out. So he begins with the ark and the mercy seat, furniture which will be placed in the innermost part of the tabernacle at the very heart of the tent of meeting. Why? Why this backward plan? Verse 22 tells us, There I will meet with you. There I will meet with you. And there I will speak to you. Now even that's odd and problematic because you need to understand the square footage of the holiest place in the tabernacle, the Holy of Holies, was 15 by 15 feet. That's not a real big place to meet with up to 3 million people. I mean, my master bedroom wouldn't hold 3 million people. And it's right about there. 15 by 15, this is not a huge area. I mean, we have a little over 120, 130 people here at the bridge. We're running out of room in the barn. God says, well, I'm going to meet you there. and I'm going to speak to you there. The other problem is only two people were even allowed access to the Lord's glory atop the mercy seat in the ark. And that was the high priest annually. But listen to this. The high priest annually, but Moses, any time he pleased. That's cool. Do you remember Moses, the reluctant rescuer remember him way back when God called to him from the same mountain 
God was speaking to him from the burning bush and Moses was saying, I can't speak, I'm a stutterer. I can't do this. Send somebody else. Send my brother. Have someone else. I can't do it. And over and over and through that whole chapter, he argues with God about his value as a deliverer. And now he is the only man who has immediate and direct access with God. And I think, wow, can you imagine that? Heather, think about this. We were talking just earlier this week. Think about, you're walking down the halls of high school, and someone says something or something comes up, or you come out of a classroom and you're really confused by some faulty teaching. And you go, man, I would love just to go talk to God right now. And you turn the corner and there's the mercy seat. And Heather walks right in and can talk to him instantaneously. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we could have that kind of access with God that Moses had? And you know where I'm going with this? We do. We do. We have immediate access to the Father through the Son, Jesus Christ. We don't have to wait around. We don't have to go through the high priest. We can go direct and instantaneously, even in the middle of Oak Harbor High School. Right then, right there, with all your friends walking by, immediate access with the Father. That's cool. Man, when I realize that, when I remember that, I can go anywhere. Cheryl and I used to say when we were young, newly married, we could go to Turkish prison, prison and it would still be fun. You know, Things would still be alright. Man, direct access to the Father. Listen, gang. The glory of God, what the Old Testament Hebrew writers called the kabod, which the kabod is literally the weight of His glory, the heaviness of God's glory, the kabod. This resided, as we'll see, I said at the end of chapter 40, it comes in and resides His glory over the mercy seat. It's from there that His glory will rest And the people of Israel began to understand that God's glory was intimately connected to the Ark of the Covenant. So intimately, in fact, that an interesting story happens in 1 Samuel chapter 4. The Philistines are attacking Israel. And Israel's trying to fight back. And someone, I believe it was Hophni and Phinehas, a couple of kids, Eli's sons, who were priests, had a brilliant idea. We're not fighting off the Philistines real well here. Let's get the Ark of the Covenant. Yeah, get the ark. Remember, they used to take it into battle and win battles all the time. So they go get the ark and they bring it without God's blessing, without his leading. They bring it right in the middle of the camp. They begin to cheer and shout. The Philistines get a little worried, but they, they toughen up and they go in and they wipe Israel out and they take the ark and run. Hophni and Phinehas are murdered. Their father, Eli, who is a, a very overweight old man, falls over in his chair, breaks his neck and dies. And Phineas' wife, his wife, is pregnant at the time. A lot to remember in that little story. But in the moment that she's about to give birth, and by the way, she's dying in the childbirth, the midwives come next to Phineas' wife. 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 20, and they say, Do not be afraid, for you have given birth to a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she called the boy Ichabod. Ichabod. The kabod, the glory, eh, kabod, saying, the glory has departed from Israel. The verse goes on to tell us, because the ark of God was taken. So intimate was the connection with the glory of God and the ark of the covenant that she said, and the Israelites believed, that when the ark was not there, God's glory was not there. When the ark was gone, the glory was gone as well. Ichabod, the glory has departed. They understood where the glory of God resided. Now I tell you that for this purpose. 
They understood that it resided above the ark at the mercy seat. And so the Apostle John would later write the following, The Word became flesh and tabernacled among us, and we saw His glory. We saw His glory. We saw His glory in the tabernacle. Which tabernacle? The tabernacle that was the body of Jesus. We saw His glory. Gang, Jesus is our tabernacle. And the tabernacle so powerfully portrays Him. And quickly now, I'm going to give you a few of these portrayals. And if you're looking up here going, how in the world are we going to do this? Put on your seatbelts. Here we go. Some things you need to know about the Ark of the Covenant. Now going back and thinking about this box that we've seen. It was constructed with acacia wood and gold. Remember that? Acacia wood. Think about the acacia wood for a moment. For the acacia wood in the Ark, or with, with which the Ark was constructed, portrays the humanity of Christ. The acacia wood portrays the humanity of Christ. Acacia wood was a common desert wood that grew right up out of parched ground. In the same way Isaiah declares this about Jesus, he says, Isaiah 53, 2, For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, no appearance that we should be attracted to him. Acacia wood. It was a common desert wood that grew up out of the ground. It was the one thing, by the way, that they didn't need to get from Egypt because it grew all over the wilderness of Sinai. Just a common bush that grew up there. Interesting. This common wood out of parched ground, just like Messiah. By the way, you Bible students will remember this. Messiah was also given the name in the Old Testament, Branch. And that name branch is the Hebrew word netzer. Messiah was going to be a branch, a netzer, and netzer is the root of Nazareth. Jesus of Nazareth, the branch. Acacia wood, a picture of Jesus' humanity. By the way, another thing about acacia wood, if you cut it, stripe it, out comes a sap or a resin that was used as a medicinal balm for healing. And Isaiah 53.5 says, He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon Him, and by His stripes we are healed. Just like the healing resin of the acacia wood, a picture of His humanity. Acacia wood was also, by the way, covered with thorns. It was covered with thorns, which was the crown which Jesus wore at his crucifixion. Matthew 27, verse 29. After twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head. And by the way, it's very likely that the wood of the thorns, or the thorny wood that was used for the Ark of the Covenant, was also the thorny wood that was used for Jesus' crown on the cross. Acacia wood. Acacia wood is also an indestructible, incorruptible hardwood. It's a great hardwood to use. It would be solid in the construction of the Ark of the Covenant. But also this whole idea of it being incorruptible points us again to the humanity of Jesus who though He died was not killed. He died, but He didn't cease to exist indestructible, incorruptible. Isaiah chapter 53 verse 10 tells us the following. The Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand after he's crushed. Isaiah even says it right there. This suffering servant, this Messiah, will not only be crushed, 
But after the fact, his days will be prolonged. He will have the blessing of the Lord. He will be eternal. Acts chapter 2 verse 31. Peter is quoting from Psalm 16.10 and he says the following, that David looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again to which we are all witnesses, acacia wood, an indestructible hardwood. It perfectly and powerfully portrays the humanity of Christ. But this wood was not just left to its own. It wasn't just stained. You remember what happened to it in the ark? It was covered over inside and out, overlaid with pure gold. And the gold of the ark speaks of another part of Christ's nature, and that is his deity. As much as the wood speaks of his humanity, the gold speaks of Christ's deity. And we've talked about this over and over recently, and I'm not going to go into this in depth, except to say four quick things that it speaks about his eternal existence. Revelation 1.8 Christ's eternal existence. I am the Alpha and the Omega, he says. One, the one who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Christ the Eternal One. Christ who is deity. It also speaks of his omniscience. Jesus as deity is omniscient. In other words, all-knowing. He knows everything at all times. I love this verse, John chapter 2, verse 23. And again, just jot these down and come back and check them out later. It tells us when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs which he was doing. But Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. Jesus didn't just play guesswork. He knew all men. He didn't just have an idea about how people might react. He wasn't just a good psychologist or some kind of a psychic who kind of had a sense of where people were going to go. He knew all men. And the Bible says that because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. So he knew all men and he knew what was in man. Jesus is all-knowing, omniscient. He is also omnipresent. In other words, he is everywhere at every time, simultaneously. Matthew 28, verse 20, he leaves us with a promise that would not be possible except that he is omnipresent, and that is, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I'm always with you, always there, wherever you are. Traveling in Hawaii, crossing over to Port Townsend, however you decide to vacation, I'm with you, I'm there, wherever you are, all present all-knowing, eternally existent, and number four, he is omnipotent, he is all-powerful. Check this verse out for size, Philippians 3.21. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. How? By the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. He is all-powerful. The gold of the ark displaying the deity of Christ. Oh, and by the way, what was Jesus, or what is Jesus seen to be wearing at his return in the scriptures? Not a thorny crown like the hardwood, the acacia wood spoke of, but a golden crown. Revelation 14, 14. I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and sitting on the cloud was one like a son of man, having a golden crown on his head, not a thorn in sight. 
Revelation 19.11 And I saw heaven open and behold a white horse and he who sat on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems that is crowns. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. The wood, speaking of his humanity. The gold, speaking of his deity. And then together, the wood and the gold as they coexist, one ark with two natures to it, same as Jesus' humanity and deity coexist, one Lord with two natures to him. Philippians 2.6 He existed in the form of God and did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped but empty himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. In 2 Corinthians 5.19, I told you we move fast. God was in Christ, reconciling the world to Himself. God was in Christ. God the Father. God, deity, was in humanity. Humanity wrapped around deity. As the gold wrapped around the wood in the Ark of the Covenant, it is a perfect picture of Jesus. But it gets better. It gets better. The contents of the Ark also speak of Jesus Remember I mentioned those before. The manna. We studied this a while back. Manha. That's the actual phrase. The actual word manha. It means what is it? Huh? I don't know. Manha. What is it? And it is the bread of heaven. And Jesus said, John 6.51, I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Why did God choose the manna and not the water that he made sweet? Why not a jar of the water that he miraculously sweetened for the people to drink? Why not one of the quail that he brought into the camp so that they could have meat? Why did they save some of the manna? Because God wanted a picture of Jesus inside the ark, the real bread of heaven. The manna, Aaron's rod that blossoms. Again, it's a terrific story, Numbers 16 and 17. The people are rebelling. They're having a problem with Aaron and Moses' leadership. And God says, I'll tell you what. Tell everyone in each one of the tribes to send the leader of their tribe with their rod. Put them all into the holy place. And we'll see which one buds. That's the person I have called to authority, to leadership. And of course, you know what happened. Aaron's rod budded. The next morning, all the other pieces of dead wood were all just sitting there. Aaron's piece of dead wood had budded back to life. It speaks of the resurrection. It speaks of a life that was once dead. Wood, like the humanity of Christ, that acacia wood, that was once dead, but now budded back to life. And not only just buds and blossoms, but the Bible tells us in number 17, almonds were on there. It bore fruit. And Christ is, as the Bible tells us, the first fruits. 1 Corinthians 15.23 and Jesus said in his own words, John 11:25, I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will live forever. So you've got the manna, the bread of heaven, speaking of Jesus. You've got Aaron's rod that blossoms, speaking of his resurrection. Can you keep it up with me? And you've got the testimony, the Ten Commandments. Oh, wait a minute. How about that spoke of Moses? The law. Why would that speak of Jesus? Because Jesus, listen to this, Jesus enveloped the law in the same way that the Ark of the Covenant would do so. He enveloped the law in his life by fulfilling it. Psalm chapter 40 verse 7. Prophetically Jesus speaking. Then I said, Behold, I come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will. Oh my God, your law is within my heart. Matthew 5.17 Jesus said, Do not think 
that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. And so Jesus, like the Ark of the Covenant that that bore the law inside it, Jesus would bear the law inside his very heart. And he would keep it perfectly. Which brings us from the Ark up to what sat on top of it, the mercy seat. And I want you to dial in just for a couple more minutes and listen to this. The mercy seat. Amazing what God does here in this picture. The ark and the mercy seat. Again, it's odd that you would begin with these. That you would start with the furniture inside the, the, the deepest, most innermost room in the entire tabernacle. But God starts here. And this is huge. So listen close. God doesn't say this. Moses... Build the outer court of the tabernacle and work your way in. He doesn't say, then build the brazen altar for sacrifice and work your way in. Build a bronze laver after that and wash yourself, thereby working your way in. Then after that, construct and design a holy place. Work your way in. Build and light the golden lampstand. Set the table of showbread in its place. Ignite the altar of incense. And by so doing, work your way in. And after all that, if you're qualified, if you're washed, if you're properly adorned as high priest, and if you're bearing the blood of sacrifice, and if you come on the right day, one day a year, then maybe, maybe, you'll have access to the holy place. By working your way in. It's not what God does. God starts in the middle. God starts in the holiest place. He starts at the heart of the matter. And let me ask you a question. How are you doing as we work our way through the Ten Commandments? I'm three for three. In abject failure. When I actually look at each one of these commandments, and I'm right along there with you, as we go through and look at these and understand them for what they really mean, I walk out every week going, strike three. I'm shooting for strike four this week. There is not a one of us. It's not a matter of I can keep two or three of the commandments. No, the reality is we can't keep any of them. When we really understand them in their context, we are unable to keep any of the commandments. And I'm going to give you guys a little insight here. The people who aren't here on Sunday morning, they're going to have to wait several weeks to hear this. You get to hear it tonight. You get to understand it right now. How can we meet with God when we can't even keep the ten simple rules? Israel attempted to keep the commandments, but the commandments were kept in the ark. Understand this. While they were trying to keep the commandments, the commandments were kept in the ark, and they were covered over by what? A mercy seat. That's why the Ten Commandments were in there. Because they were covered by mercy. They were overshadowed by mercy. They were wrapped up in the heart of the matter. The heart of what matter? The heart of Jesus, who is pictured in the Ark of the Covenant, that gold-wrapped wood that pictures both his humanity and deity. Inside is placed those Ten Commands. And on top is covered the mercy seat. This is a beautiful picture. The unkeepable commandments are kept in the ark and covered by the mercy seat just as our perfect Lord Jesus has kept and covered the commands by His mercy for our lives. And so in verse 21 it tells us you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark and in the ark you shall put the testimony which I will give to you and there I will meet with you 
And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim, which are upon the ark of the testimony, I will speak to you about all that I will give you in commandment for the sons of Israel. And so in Christ, we have unlimited and immediate access to the Father. We get to start in the Holy of Holies, at the Ark of the Covenant, at the heart of Jesus, because of His mercy. One last verse and we're done. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 19 says, Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which He inaugurated for us all through the veil, that is, His flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the mercy. Thank you for the insight to Jesus tonight. And I pray if anyone came in with a heavy load, a weight of guilt, a sense that maybe they're not measuring up, that again tonight you will remind us that you have kept the commandments that we could not keep and that you have covered them over with your mercy and that we actually can have access to you not not in the shadow of the tabernacle, not just in the blueprints of the original, but in the original we have access to you in heaven, Lord. How awesome is that? How wonderful, Jesus. And how we thank you and praise you for this access and for loving us this much. God, lift our spirits and keep our eyes fixed on you and help us to encourage our brothers and sisters who aren't here tonight who have to trudge through the rest of the commandments without knowing this fantastic, wonderful truth. Oh, I'm kidding, Lord, but this is the deal. We can go forward and study the commands and even seek to apply them in our lives because we know that we are already covered with mercy. Praise God. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.